You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. So how many took the homework challenge from last week? One, two, three, four. Okay, cool. If you forgot, the challenge was... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, five minutes, the alpha. The, the, the challenge was to... Uh, to take Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 to 20, and, and, and look at that and see, I, I counted 25 things that it said about Jesus. Maybe you found more, but, but at least 25 things that it said about Jesus. And then look at, okay, identify what those 25 things were, but then also look at how that impacts your view of Jesus, your picture of Christ. And then taking how that impacts your view of Christ, how does that impact the way that you respond towards Jesus? That was part of the homework. The other part of the homework was, you know, I told you we we're going to jump ahead to Revelation chapter 4 tonight, which we are. So I wanted you to read Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Anybody do that? Anybody uh, get ahead and read chapter 4? Getting ready for tonight? We're, we're picking up in chapter 4, and, and, and I want to start with this. You need to hear me say this. What you fill your mind with matters. What you fill your mind with matters. God is responsible for changing your heart, but you are responsible for what goes into your mind. And, and what you fill your mind with uh, it, it matters. Now think about this. How, how many of you in here, you've got, like, uh, you've got your show on Netflix that you're watching through right now? Let me see your hand. How many of anybody here not have Netflix? Let me see your hand. Oh my gosh. All right. So, all right. What's your, what, what are you watching? Like, what are you trying to get through right now on Netflix? Let me hear it. What, what are you trying to watch through? Geeks and Freaks, House of Cards. I, somebody from the back. I, I'm getting... Gotham. Is that good? Okay, apparently everybody's watching Gotham. How many of you got, you got like two, you two, you got two, like two shows you're working through right now. Let me hear it. Let me see. Okay. Uh, anybody watching The Bachelor? I know that's not on Netflix. Okay. The enthusiastic hands go up. Anybody watching this? Everybody's been freaking out about making a murder. Anybody watching that? Um, let's see. What else? Anybody still like stuck on the Friends reruns? And then everybody else who didn't admit it just now. You know, th- think about this. What you fill your mind with matters. Listen, if you spend all of your time, if we... If we spend all of our time filling our mind with whatever it is on Netflix that we're filling our mind with, then, then why should we expect ourselves to live or act any differently than the rest of the world? I mean, because the reality is, like, that's the, what the rest of the world is filling their mind with. And, and even then, like, the stuff that is coming out of that stuff, it is a picture of how the rest of the world lives, except maybe on Gotham. I don't know how Gotham lives. But do you understand what I'm saying? What you fill your mind with matters. Think about it this way. Like if you spend all of your time flipping through Facebook uh, or, or flipping through Instagram or hanging out on Snapchat, then of, of course like you're going to live a life of, of fear, a life of sadness, a life of loneliness, a life of like feeling like, okay, your worth is, is judged or determined by how many likes, how many followers, how many views you get. What you fill your mind with matters. Like that's, if, if, if you spend all of your time filling your mind with social media, then that's, that's going to impact like, the way you view everything around you. Like you're going to see all these people's perfect lives, really only the good pictures that took 1,700 shots to get the good picture from. That's all you're going to see. And so you're always going to be measuring yourself against that. You're always going to be measuring your self-worth against that. What you fill your mind with matters. I mean, if you spend all your time looking at pornography, I mean, no wonder every time you are introduced to the opposite sex, like you're just awkward around the opposite sex. And, and when you get rejected, no wonder, like it's, it feels like the whole earth just crumbles. 
Because what you fill your mind with matters. Um, what you look at matters. I, I just want to point to this text. Luke chapter 11, verse 34 says, Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. In other words, what he's saying there, the eye is the lamp of the body. What you look at matters. You see this all throughout Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Flip there with me. This is why I didn't put it in my notes. I want you to flip there with me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope. And he could have said there, set your mind fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope, set your mind fully, completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Are we doing that? Or instead, are we being just like the non-believers around us and setting our mind on the exact same things that they set their mind on? We saw Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-4 through four last week, where, where, where Paul basically says, because you have now been raised with Christ, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are below. Set your mind on things that are above, like look at Christ seated at the right hand of God and consider the implications that now has on your life. We've got to stop obsessing over the world and all that it has to offer us. Because we, as followers of Jesus, people who say that we believe that this is the true word of God, then we know that there's so much more to life, so much more to existence than what the world can give us. We've got to stop being so short-sighted, focusing on the things that are seen right in front of our face. We've got to stop living like we've never heard of heaven. What we fill our minds with matters. So this weekend, our church had a, a it's, it's D-Now. Anybody in here ever been to a D-Now before? Um, so our church had D-Now this weekend. Um, some of the pastors in our church, including myself, we kind of split the preaching duties at this D-Now. So I preached Saturday night at the D-Now. And just as a little pause here, uh, any, any college students who served this weekend in the D-Now, put your hand up really, really high. I just want to recognize you. These are students who gave up their weekend, gave up sleep this, keep it up there, gave up sleep this weekend, uh, serving obnoxious middle school and high school students. Sorry, there's some high school students in here, I know. Uh, serving awesome, wonderful high school and middle school students, giving up sleep, um, leading them in small groups, coming to the worship stuff, serving around Denton. Um, the, the Sunday after D-Now is my favorite Sunday, one of my favorite Sundays, because I love to watch our college students who are serving in D-Now uh, like struggle bus so hard to stay awake in church. This Sunday I was sitting across the aisle from one of our students, and I got some great video um, of him. I just took some, I just took some, do we have those pictures? I, I took some screenshots of, of, uh, <laughs> go ahead and just kind of flip through a couple of them. Now this is actually a video. Uh, actually go back, go back to that one right there, the, the yawning one. If you also see, you can see in the front of him, there's a, a dude who's passed out on the, on the, on the, on the, on the not the hood, the uh, pew in front of him. But anyways, there's like six screenshots I took. Sorry, Cole, where's Cole at? Where are you at? Yeah, buddy. Hey, man, I, you know, that's the one Sunday where I'm like, hey, it's cool if you pass out in church because uh, I know you've been working hard all weekend and uh, serving the Lord through serving those students. So I appreciate you all doing that. But all that to say, I had the opportunity to preach Saturday night to our high school, middle school students. And, and I shared with them some of the stories that I've shared in here before of opportunities that I've had to interact with believers in other countries around the world that are being heavily persecuted. And, uh, and, and I shared 
a couple of those stories specifically, but I, I, I told them about, um, if you remember, a couple of years ago, had the opportunity in South Asia to uh, be a part of this, um, this training, this conference for persecuted pastors. They'd been brought into this part of the city where it was safe for them to gather, and all of them had been facing some pretty heavy persecution, most of them physical persecution. And, uh, and, and I shared with them some of the stories of these men and women that they shared with us at this, uh, at this gathering. And, and, and I told them, you know, what's, what's been so like, um, what's been hard for me, like in, in walking away from those conversations and those experiences has been, I mean, one, every time I walk away from hearing those stories, I, I, I do walk away with this just overwhelming, like, um, sense of God's power and, like, seeing God's power work in an incredible way. Like, like hearing the stories of, of these men and women who are being persecuted, say, in South Asia or Southeast Asia, some other places I've been and met with these believers. Like, it's, it's, it's unbelievable to see how God aggressively fights back on behalf of his people. So in that sense, it's like I walk away over, overwhelmed by the power of God, overwhelmed by the grace of God in these people's lives as these people, though they're being heavily persecuted, are still courageously pushing forward for the mission of God. But the other thing that I've walked away from these gatherings with is this question in my mind of why doesn't that kind of persecution happen to us here today? And I'm sure there's multiple explanations for why that is. Like, why don't we face that kind of persecution, but something that God has really laid heavily on my heart is a text out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul writes this. He says, the God of the age, and it's lowercase g, God. It's not God, God. It's the God of the age, Satan. The God of the age, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. In other words, what that text is saying is Satan, he uses all of these different tactics to try to do whatever he can to stop people on this planet from knowing Jesus, seeing Jesus, experiencing Christ, understanding the gospel. Um, and, and, and here's really what this translates to in my mind. So Satan, he's the author of persecution. Like that's one of his tactics that he uses to keep people from seeing the light of the gospel on this planet. He uses persecution to try to shut up the church so that it doesn't continue to speak out and expose more and more people to the light of the gospel. So understanding that to be the case, it, it brings me back to the question, so why don't we face that kind of persecution here? And, and here's what God has convicted my heart of. Why, why would Satan be worried about trying to shut up a church or a group of believers who aren't being loud? Like, why would Satan try to or, or, or be worried about wasting his energy trying to stop a church or a group of believers who are not on the move? Like, why would he expend his energy going after a, a sleeping church or a sleeping army, because essentially that's what we are, and risk waking us up? We don't face persecution like that because he's got us right where he wants us, blinded, distracted, preoccupied, um, lulled to sleep. The reason that Satan is persecuting the church in places like South Asia and a lot of places around the world is because the church, the group of believers in those areas are, are, are believers whose minds are fully consumed with the thought of God's glory. These are, these are believers whose minds are consumed with thoughts about God's mission, minds who are consumed with thoughts about eternity, minds, their minds are consumed with thoughts about how they can use every last bit of their resources for sharing the gospel, getting the gospel to people who don't yet know the gospel. But our minds, on the other hand, are consumed with anything, and I feel like everything but that. We're so obsessed with the world. 
It's not persecution that silences the church. It's the church's obsession with the world that silences itself. And, and that's why I said last week that persecution is not our greatest threat. It's consumerism or lukewarmness that's our greatest threat. Persecution isn't our greatest threat. It's losing sight of eternity that's our greatest threat. It's losing sight of, of God that is our greatest threat. Our, our biggest threat or the biggest threat to the mission of God in the United States the biggest threat to the glory of God in the United States is not new laws imposed on us by the government. It's not violent people in our country who oppose us. Instead, it is us, ourselves, losing sight of God. And last week we read in, in, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, this verse, this was the focus of last week. It says, blessed is the one, Jesus says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Listen, as I'm continuing in my own personal study of this book in preparation for teaching it here, I'm becoming more and more convinced. I'm becoming more and more convinced that taking this one verse, Revelation 1-3, seriously, might have more of a significant impact on the church, on our lives, than if we were to do the same with any other verse in Scripture. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of his prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So last week we ended with Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. This week we're going to pick up in Revelation chapter 4, uh, verse 1. I want you to hear what it says. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, it says, After this I looked. Now I want you to understand the directional words here. It said, After this. In other words, what John is saying is, prior to this, in chapter 2 through 3, like Jesus, he had, um, he had essentially written seven letters to seven churches. Um, these churches, you need to understand, were real churches. Like they were real, actual, historical churches in real, actual, historical cities. And, and Jesus writes to them about problems that were really actually happening in these real, actual, historical churches. But hearing that, you also have to remember, and I think we said this last week, the number seven in, in Scripture sometimes is a symbolic number. And in this case, I think, I think it's being somewhat symbolic. Like even though these are real churches, actual historical churches, the fact that he writes to seven churches is supposed to be symbolic, showing because the number seven is the number for perfection and for completeness. It's showing that even though these are real actual churches, they're also symbolic of the greater church, like all of God's church. So even though Revelation 2 and 3, in that he's, Jesus is describing and dealing with specific issues that existed in these seven actual churches, he's also essentially describing what the landscape of his church looks like today. So understanding that to be the case, here, here's your first homework assignment of the night. I want you this week to go back and read chapters 2 and 3. But this time, when you go back and read chapters 2 and 3, I want you to, to look and I want you to ask the question. Which of those seven churches that Jesus is writing to do you feel like we most identify with? Like when you look at the, the, the good things and the not good things that he says about these churches and the challenges that he gives to them, what, um, what of the, which of the seven churches do you think we most identify with? And then ask yourself this question. Like if Jesus was to write us a letter in the same way that he wrote, say, the church of Laodicea a letter, if he was to write the church of Denton or First Baptist Church or Overflow, a letter, what would he say about us? 
And I would guess that as, as you're thinking through that, like I know it's easy to stand back and kind of bash the church. I know it's easy to stand back and, and critique the church, but you got to understand this. Who is the church? We are the church. You make up the church. So maybe here's a good way to think through this as you think about this. If everyone in this room tonight had the same type of faith that you have, and Jesus was to write a letter to this church, what would he say? Let me say that again. If everybody in this room was to have the same type of faith that you have, and Jesus was to write a letter to everybody in this room, what would he say? Now, when you go back and you read chapters 2 and 3, you're going to see that the churches were struggling. Um, There was a lot of good stuff happening in these churches, most of them. Uh, But you also see that there was stuff happening in the churches that was was a real struggle. And and Jesus addresses those things. Uh, They were struggling because of persecution. They were struggling because of idolatry, immorality. They were struggling because of lukewarmness and, and, and some other things. So here's the question. When the church is struggling, what's the solution? Maybe an interesting place to start thinking about this is, in, in, in our day, like in today, like when, the church, when churches are struggling, how do we typically try to solve the struggle? I mean, I'll tell you the first thing. As I was thinking through this, I think the first thing is we, most, of, most of the time, like we just try to ignore it, you know, hoping that the struggle will solve itself. Kind of like the maintenance required light in your car. <laughs> you're laughing because some of you, it's like on now and you're ignoring it. I, honestly, I'll be honest, I thought of this. And writing this this week because mine is on and off like all week right now. And I'm hoping that it will just solve itself. But I, I have, I've, I've owned three cars uh, in my existence. And I've spent altogether about $9,000 on all three of those cars. Um, my first car I bought uh, in high school with money that I had made from mowing lawns. And uh, it was a 1989 Bronco II uh, miniature OJ getaway vehicle. Um, and uh, then... My parents in college, they gave me one of their cars after they got enough money to buy a newer car. They gave me one of their cars, a 1995 white Chevy Lumina. It's like driving a boat. But they gave me that car because they were terrified if I kept driving the 1989 Bronco II, I would die. Uh, and, and rightfully so, because that car was extremely dangerous, top heavy. I got it up on two wheels twice. Um, I don't know why I just said that, but it is true. Uh, and then God graciously put on the heart of some people to give me, um, not give me, but essentially give me the car that I have now, 2003, 2003-ish Honda. Uh, I think it's an Accord. I care, clearly, I care a lot about cars. Um, but uh, basically, it was a steal. Like, they pretty much gave me the car. Um, but I say all that to say, I've never owned a new car. So, of course, I've had a lot of car problems. Somebody's calling you. Um, I've had a lot of... Uh... <laughs> what tune is that? Dang, I felt like we were all of a sudden listening like... I don't know, some R&B station or something. Um, anyway, so I, naturally, because I haven't had any new car, like I've, I've had a lot of car problems. Thankfully, most of them have been small problems. My 89 Bronco II, there was a two-week period where I drove on three different transmissions in that car. Those were major problems, but um, most of it's just been small problems, and so I've gotten really good at ignoring the check engine light when it comes on. Uh, I, I seriously think the check engine light is like a... Uh, it is like of the devil because it only comes on, and you can probably vouch for this, it only comes on when like everything in your life is going right. And then I feel like Satan gets jealous and he's like, man, I'm just going to, you know, he comes down, like kicks our engine and then the engine light comes on. And, and, uh, but, but what do you do? Honestly, what do you do when the check engine light comes on? Yeah, you ignore it. Why, why do you ignore it? I mean, seriously, why do you ignore it? I mean, when you think about it, there's really only one, there's only one warning light in your car that you can't ignore. 
Yeah, the oil change. Like the gaslight, you can ignore that for a season. I know on mine, when, when the gaslight comes on, I've got 80 miles on the highway, at least, okay? Um, the check engine light, you can ignore it. I mean, for the oil light, you cannot ignore Don't Ladies, guys, don't ignore the oil light, okay? But the che- why do you ignore the check engine light? Like, what, what's the purpose behind that? So the car's still running. Hey, honestly, yeah, the car's still running. I mean, what's, obviously, whatever's wrong isn't that big of a deal. I mean, I think, honestly, you just don't want to deal with it. And I think secretly we hope it'll fix itself. I think, on, I, I think when it comes to the church struggling, and again, like, we are the church, I think we just ignore it, kind of like the check engine light, hoping, one, we don't want to deal with it. Two, the car's still running, so it, whatever's wrong must not be that big of a deal. And, and three, we just hope that it'll fix itself. But other ways that I think we try to fix the struggling church is, I don't know, just uh, what, what are some things that you can think of that maybe we try to do to fix a struggling church? Is that a weird question? Yeah, it is. I mean, my mind went to things like, you know, change the music style. Be more trendy, you know, add a coffee bar somewhere in the building. <laughs> or, or rebrand yourself, you know, get a new logo or, or you know, in, in some cases people try to fix a struggling church through renovations or building new stuff. Now, that's not always the case, but that's something that I've seen happen, like, you what? Stop praying. stop praying. Start praying or stop praying? Stop praying. Stop praying. Well, yeah, that would be maybe a reason that the church is struggling. <laughs> church is struggling. We're going to stop praying. I, I know what you meant. Start, start praying. Um, there, there's different things. You know, maybe, maybe like hire a newer, younger pastor or, or try to make funnier sermons. There's all these different things that we try to do to fix a struggling church. But here's what I want to point out. What's the first thing after Jesus, he writes these letters to these struggling churches. What's the first thing that he does for these struggling churches? In Revelation 4, what does he do? Verse 1, after this I looked, and behold, a door. So John's talking now. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, what? Behold a what? Throne. Everybody say throne. throne. He says behold a throne. The first thing that Jesus does for this struggling church is he directs their attention to what? The throne. He calls their attention to the throne. He points their attention to the throne. When the church is struggling, the solution is a bigger, clearer view of the throne. A bigger, clearer view of God. So, going with, that, uh, with what Oasis said down here in the front. Like maybe the church, like, like maybe a lack of prayer is why the church is struggling. Maybe it's, it's sin, hidden sin that's not being dealt with, which is causing the church to struggle. Maybe it's, um, <clears throat> maybe it's a lack of regard for God's word. Maybe that's why the church is struggling. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's poor stewardship of our resources, And when you look at churches that are struggling, maybe it's because they're not stewarding the resources well. Maybe it's because uh, there's lazy pastors or lazy church members. But when when you look at all of those issues, all of those issues are ultimately view of God, view of the throne problems. Think about it like this. Like why would anybody feel convicted of their sin if they aren't able to see how holy and how righteous God is? Why would anybody be convicted to confess their sin, to repent of their sin, if they're not able to see the coming wrath and judgment of God for those who don't stand under his grace? 
Like, why would anybody be driven to their knees desperately in prayer if they don't first see how big and how powerful God is and able to answer prayer? Like, why would anybody be convicted to dig into God's word? Why would anybody hunger for God's word unless they really saw and understood how powerful his word is? I mean, if you go back to Revelation chapter 1, I think it's verse 16. Yeah, verse 16. Describing Jesus. This is one of the things, if you did your homework, you saw. Describes Jesus. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. In other words, God's word, it doesn't wield a dull edge. It doesn't matter which way it's swinging. It's going to cut deep. But unless we see that side of God, why would we hunger for his word? Like, we're not going to be good stewards of what we have if, if we think what we have is ours, if we don't realize that God is the one on the throne. He's the, the, the creator of all things, the resourcer of all things. And we're not going to be urgent and the opposite of lazy when it comes to God's mission if we don't see how urgent it is that anybody who who doesn't stand under God's grace and mercy, stands under God's wrath. The solution for a struggling church, and again, I'm I'm using the word church, but understand, you are the church. The solution for a struggling church is a redirected focus or redirected gaze towards the throne. Now think about this. I just answered this for you, but what is the church, or who is the church? Yeah, you, me, us. So if the solution for a struggling church is a redirected focus towards the throne, what is the solution for a struggling believer, a struggling church member? A redirected gaze towards the throne. So let's just stop there for a second. Are you struggling? I mean, maybe as I said a second ago, like, Sometimes churches struggle because there's undealt with hidden sin, whether that's in the church members, churchgoers, or the pastors themselves. Like, like maybe that's you. Like, you're struggling with hidden sin. You're, you're, you, are, you have got this sin that you have bottled up. You are trying to pack it away, hide it. Nobody can see. Refusing to confess, refusing to repent. Can I just say that the solution to that struggle is a redirected gaze towards the throne? Maybe you're struggling just in your relationship with the Lord, pursuing him through prayer, pursuing him through the word. The solution to that is a redirected gaze towards the throne. Maybe for you it's, it's, it's a poor use of your resources, poor use of your time, laziness for God's mission. The solution to that is a redirected gaze towards the throne. Behold the throne. That's what Jesus says. God's size dwarfs all of our fears, all of our problems. God's strength makes our enemies look ridiculous, goofy. God's beauty keeps us from elevating ourselves to this prideful position that we don't belong in. Jesus says, behold the throne. The focus of Revelation is not a timeline of events trying to figure out what the end times are all going to look like. The focus of Revelation isn't even really like where are you going to be in that timeline of events 
or what's going to be happening to you. The focus of Revelation is where God will still be and what he'll be doing. He'll be on the throne in all of it. The focus is on his sovereign power over everything. The focus is on his righteous judgment, his grace, his mercy, and his ultimate victory. The focus is on the what? The throne. And that being said, before we take a closer look at the throne, because in a second John's going to describe what he sees when he looks at the throne, I want to do a quick sidebar here. Because all my life, um, up honestly until somewhat recently, like I had, I had I've been taught, when it, especially when it comes to Revelation and the end times, like what's the, when you think about Revelation, when you think about end times, what's the event that, you, that comes to mind first? Like what's the big event that everybody thinks about? The rapture. Somebody else say something different? What would you say, praise? What would you say? I'm not going to put it on the spot. Yeah, the rapture, right? So like everybody thinks about that. You know, when I grew up, I, I was always taught, you know, there's going to be this, like before all the crazy stuff happens in Revelation, there's going to be this rapture that, like did you ever read the, the Left Behind books? That was kind of a long time ago. Anybody in here read those? Quite a few of you actually read those, okay. Or seen the movies, Left Behind, you know, Kirk Cameron and friends. Like those movies are all built around this idea of the rapture. Like one day, all of a sudden, like all the believers are just going to disappear. So like, like if, if, if you're on I-35 and the rapture happens and there's believers driving those cars out there, like I was going to say it'd be more dangerous than it is now. It's really about as dangerous now, I mean, the way people drive. But like cars, are just, you're going to see this cataclysmic event. Or if you're in an airplane and the pilot's a believer and you're not, like, sorry. But as I started reading Revelation, I'll just be honest with you, I didn't see that in there. And the reason I'm stopping to make this side note here is because um, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, and Revelation 3, verse 10, this is, this is kind of where that idea comes from. Um, you, you look at Revelation 4, 1. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open to heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. So a lot of people think, some, some people think that John here represents metaphorically the whole church, all believers, and they connect the, the trumpet-sounding voice, who is Jesus, as revealed in Revelation 1 and some other places in Scripture. Um, connecting that is the moment when Jesus comes to call believers up into heaven. Um, the door opening is, is, you know, the door opening into heaven. Um, Revelation 3.10, you back up. It says, because you've kept my word. He's talking to the church at Philadelphia. Um, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. I will, he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. In other words, a lot of people think, some people think that that is talking about this rapture that's going to take place before the tribulation. So that if you're a believer on the earth, when all this stuff starts, you won't experience the tribulation. You seeing that in there? Uh, the reason I point this out is, um, one, I don't know that you would, would have seen that unless... I pointed it out to you, and I'm not saying that because you don't have good reading comprehension. I'm saying that I didn't see that either until it was pointed out to me. Um, the point is this. like, We could spend a, a lot of time talking about this, and some will agree, others will disagree. Honestly, that's fine. This is a secondary issue. It's not a hill to die on, but I know if we don't talk about it, people would get to the end of the study and be like, hey, wait a second, we didn't talk about the rapture. Um, some people think the rapture will happen before the tribulation, all this crazy stuff we're going to get to here in a few weeks. Other people think it happens somewhere in the middle of that tribulation. Other people think it happens afterwards. I personally um, don't think that it happens before the tribulation. I, I, don't, I don't think that that's in there. And, and again, I don't think that you would have seen it in there unless I'd pointed it out to you. And the reason I do point this out is because even though it's a secondary issue, 
Like, I think how you view the rapture and the timing of it impacts the way that you read and you see everything that's coming next. Not just tonight, but in the future nights. But here, here's, here's the big reason I don't think Revelation 4.1 is pointing to the rapture. Go back to verse 2. What does he say? Behold what? Behold the throne. He doesn't say behold the rapture. He says behold the throne. The focus of this verse, the focus of chapter 4, is the throne. So let's look at the throne because, again, Luke eleven thirty four 34 tells us what you look at matters. So verse 2, he says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. I want to pause there for a second. If you write in your Bible, I want you to circle the word one and then draw a line out to the margin. Circle the word one and draw a line out to the margin and write in the margin. There can only be one on the throne. There's only one on the throne. There can only be one on the throne. And as I was reading through this, I felt convicted to ask you the question, who do you see on the throne? And who you see on the throne, it doesn't change the reality of who is actually on the throne, but it does impact everything about how you live now. We'll come back to that more in a second, but verse 3 says, and, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. So we're getting a clear description of the throne right here. And specifically, if you look at the, I think those are prepositions, I'm trying to be grammatically correct there, but the description, you see what's on, what's around, what's from, what's before, and what's on each side of the throne. You'll see those words in the text. So looking at verse 3, the first part, it says, And he who sat there on the throne, is implied, had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Um, a couple things to know about this. Jasper and carnelian. Um, they were the first and the last stones on the high priest's breastplate. If you were to go back to Exodus chapter 28, I believe beginning in verse 15, it describes God giving the instructions for the high priest and what he was supposed to wear when he went into the presence of God. And he was supposed to have this breastplate. It had 12 stones, each of those 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and Jasper and Carnelian were the first and last stones. Um, in other words, kind of potentially here symbolizing how it includes all of God's covenant people. Um, also, what's interesting here, well, it also probably alludes to the fact that God is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Um, but also what's interesting is Jasper was white. And Carnelian, sometimes translated, actually in Exodus, it's translated as, um, I don't even know how to say it, Sardius, S-A-R-D-I-U-S, Sargis, whatever. Um, Jasper was white, Carnelian was red. And a lot of people think that the Jasper that John was seeing represented or was showing the, the purity and, and the righteousness that comes from Jesus Hence the red representing the blood of Christ who, uh, that was shed on the cross that leads to our purity and our righteousness. So you read on verse 3. It said, One who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne, so now we're at that word around, around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. When do we first see a rainbow in Scripture? 
Noah. And what did the rainbow represent? Yeah, this was, this was a promise, a significant promise from God to not destroy the world through a flood ever again. You see that in Genesis chapter 9. Um, one commentator on this, he said, God's attributes always operate in perfect harmony. His wrath never operates at the expense of his faithfulness. So God, he's, what, he, what he's doing here is, is we're about to see his wrath unleashed. But before unleashing his wrath, which we're going to see in the coming chapters, he's reminding us that he is a promise keeper and he will keep his promises made to the church. Uh, then he describes that rainbow as being emerald. Um, do you know what an emerald stone, what color that is? Green or greenish. To me it looks like kryptonite, whatever. Um, and, that, and that probably represents life and shows that though God's wrath is coming, we cannot forget his promise of life for those who are his. You look at verse 4. It says, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with gold crowns on their heads. Um, there's a lot of questions of who the 24 are. Um, it really kind of depends on who you ask, what answer you get. Some think they're the 12 sons of Israel and the 12 apostles, kind of representing the church. Others think they're some higher order of angelic beings. Um, honestly, again, the focus here is not on anything but the throne, so we can, we can not get too caught up in not knowing who those people are, um, at least for now. Verse 5 says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. What does this sound like? Is there another place in Scripture you see this? We studied it this time last year. Yeah, Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19. We see God consume Mount Sinai and there was lightning and rumblings of thunder. Similar, similar idea, similar picture. And essentially what it's showing is, as, as you see the aspect of God that reveals his grace and his mercy through Christ and, and his promises, you're also seeing his wrath, his coming wrath. This thunder, this lightning represents his wrath towards those who are not holy. Uh, you read on. So it says, um, after the thunder, well, verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And then before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are seven spirits of God. Um, this... Uh, one thing you need to know in reading Revelation that will help us in interpreting what we're seeing is there's other places throughout Scripture that oftentimes use uh, these same pictures. And, uh, and we see this same picture. I'll, I'll give you a couple references. I'll point you to one. Um, Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, I would encourage you to go and look at that. It actually uses a very similar image here, and, it, and it, at the end of it, it says that he's talking about the Spirit of God. Um, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Um, it, it describes the, the different attributes of the Spirit of God. And then Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Do you remember what happened when the Holy Spirit came at the time of Pentecost? How, how did it come? What, how, did it show his, how did he show himself when he came on the people? Yeah, tongues of fire. So you see the seven torches here in Revelation. You see the tongues of fire in Acts chapter 2. You see what you see in Zechariah and Isaiah. And, and, Isaiah. Um, and again, the number seven is important here. So to say the seven spirits of God is essentially to say the spirit in all of his fullness, all of his completion was there, was present. Verse 6 says, And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. You ever been to the lake on a day when it's just like perfectly calm? Yeah? No? Yeah, I mean, what does it look like? When I'm talking not just like little bitty waves, I'm talking like it is perfectly calm. What does it look like? It looks like glass. Um... I mean, it's, it, you see these perfect reflection of whatever's on the shore in the water because it's, it's like glass. It's like a mirror, totally calm, no movement at all. 
And so here, what he's trying to show us is all is calm before the throne of God. Again, God's size dwarfs our problems and our fears. God's power makes our enemies look goofy. Turn to Psalm 46 really quick. I want to point this out. Psalm 46. It says this. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And then verse 10 says this, be what? Still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. All is calm before the throne of God. Um, Then you read on, verse 6, going back to Revelation 4. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like that of a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around um, and within. Um, First of all, again, if you want to use other places in Scripture that that show this similar vision, make note of Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 through 28, and also Ezekiel chapter 10. But these four creatures, um, again, depends on who you talk to, what kind of description or explanation you get here, but one of the more, um, I think, agreed upon Descriptions of this is these four creatures each represent an aspect of God, like, a, like a, a quality of God. In fact, a lot of people will say that they kind of correspond to the four Gospels. Because if you look at the four Gospels, Matthew, when he writes his Gospel, his emphasis throughout the Gospel is to show that Jesus is the King. He is the Messiah. That's why you see in the first part of Matthew, he gives this genealogy tracing Jesus back to uh, the lineage of David. So he's trying to show that that Jesus is king. So the first creature you see is what? The lion, which is what? The king of the jungle. Don't start singing it. Then the second creature is what? An ox. Well, you look at Mark, the gospel of Mark. And in Mark, so it's it's, kind of cool how the gospels, they, they, um, they just fit together so perfectly. So, so Matthew, he's trying to show that Jesus is king. Mark, he's trying to show that Jesus is servant of all. Now think about what an ox does. He's like the servant. He's like the servant of all of the animals, you know. Um, then what's the third creature? Looked like a man. You read the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke, you can tell by the descriptions and the things that he says and focuses on that his main purpose in writing that gospel was to show that Jesus was fully man. Then you look at John. Uh, What was John's main purpose in writing his gospel, or kind of the big theme? Jesus is who? Jesus is God. 
And the fourth creature was what? Yeah, this creature looked like this eagle, the ruler of the skies. So a lot of people think the creatures kind of correspond with the gospels, emphasizing some different qualities of God. You also see um, the end of verse or the beginning of verse eight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, showing um, God's omnipresence and God's omniscience. Now, quickly, I want to read verse eight through eleven, the end of the chapter. So it says, "And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty.'" Who was and is and is to come. Which, just a side note here, holy, holy, holy. You ever wondered why it says holy, holy, holy three times? Like, like some people think, because right after that it says that God is the one who was and is and is to come. Maybe it's like acknowledging those three aspects or those three realities about God. But I'll, I'll be honest, I think, I think it's saying holy, holy, holy. He's saying holy is the Father, holy is the Son, holy is the Trinity. Or holy is the Spirit, the Trinity. Verse 9, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, what do they do? They fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Take a moment. And step back and see the big picture. Like ignore all the little details that, you know, there's maybe symbolism there and maybe pointing to this. Stop trying to figure out what every one of those things points to. And look at the big picture. What is the focal point of this chapter? The throne. Who is on the throne? God is. Where is the throne? It started, okay, who's on the throne, then what's around the throne, and what's around the throne? Where's the throne? Right in the middle, in the center. And what's happening around the throne? What'd you say? Worship. The creatures worship as the creatures worship. The 24 elders fall prostrate before the Lord and worship. The throne is ultimately the focal point of all of Revelation. Because everything that happens from here forward, though it might not actually happen in the throne room, it is coming from the throne room. And so the question I want to leave you with tonight is, is the throne the focal point of your life? Who is on the throne of your heart? Have you truly submitted to Christ? I mean, have you surrendered? Have you, you know, raised the white flag, waved it, to him, realizing that it doesn't matter who you want to be on the throne, he is on the throne, and he's going to be on the throne, so you might as well just surrender to him. I think a lot of us in this room associate ourselves with Christ, but few of us are actually submitting ourselves to Christ. There's a big difference. So who's on the throne of your heart? Where is the throne in your life? Where's the throne in your life? Is it out in front where it should be? Is it off to the side? Is it behind you? Does your life revolve around the throne or are you trying to get the throne to revolve around your life? Where is the throne in your life? And what are you doing in response to the throne? Which ultimately is gonna be affected, on, affected by who's on the throne and where is the throne. But what are you doing in response to the throne? You know Romans 12, 1? Do you? I'll take that silence as a no. 
Romans 12.1, Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is what? Yeah, confidently said. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is how you worship God. In other words, what he could have said is, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's throne, Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is how you worship him. So if the throne is in its rightful place, your life will reflect that. So here's your homework. One, like I said earlier, chapters two and three, read it. Which church do you think we identify with of those seven? What would Jesus write to this church? Specifically, what would Jesus write to this group of believers in this room if everybody in this room had the same type of faith that you have? And then the other homework assignment is redirect your gaze towards the throne. Ask the question, is the throne the focal point of your life? Who's on the throne of your heart? Where is the throne in your life? And what are you doing in response to the throne? And and here's just a real practical suggestion, and I'm going to take this myself. I want to challenge everybody in here to remove yourself from some of the regular things that are in your life this week and intentionally get away in a place or in a moment where you can, for a time, like focus your gaze on the throne. Redirect your gaze on the throne. What, what you fill your mind with matters. So you can sit there and you can watch The Bachelor Or you can sit there and stare at the throne. And if you just compare those two pictures, there's going to be a huge difference in in what you do in response. So my challenge to you is to remove some of the normal things that are part of your life and have a season where you redirect your gaze towards the throne. Let me pray for us. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.